Good morning. Welcome to LifeQuest Community Church. We're uh, so excited to have you with us, this beautiful uh, church at the gazebo. So every year we find something interesting. And so last time I talked about how we couldn't find Justy and Toby, and they were playing poker behind the war memorial. (laughs) So this year, as we're getting ready, I look down, and they're down here on the sidewalk, and they're playing blackjack, but Jake had brought his knife. And I was like, is that to take care of cheaters? And he said, no, but that's a great idea. So you never know what you'll find at Church of the Gazebo. Um, We'll give a knife back, Jake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would come and meet with us and that you would be glorified in our hearts and in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, that was really nice. If you're willing and able, please stand with us. We're going to worship the Lord today. Um, I don't think I mentioned this, but whoever's doing communion, we're going to do three songs. Just so you know. Okay. So um, so let's stand together, if you're willing. And let's worship the Lord.
Shout it.
Have you ever uh, had that moment where you you ate something and the smell of it triggered a memory? That where you it, it's one of those things that the the sense of smell and the sense of taste is something that triggers something in our brains uh, to memory that's just amazing. And uh, while the communion meal doesn't have a lot of aroma to it, um, it's meant to remind us. uh, When uh, Nathaniel and I were on the backpacking trip uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, we were sitting down around the campfire, and it's one of those things that when you're camping, food becomes this powerful draw and and as you're in the woods eating camp food you start to fantasize about all the things that you can eat in the real world and you sing the McDonald's song over and over and over again and uh, we camping food has gotten a lot better in in the recent years and so we were sitting down and enjoying an apple crisp for our dessert and it was really good and Nathaniel looked up at me and he said, Dad, he said, this smells like home. And, and it, it, that smell triggered something that, and, and I said, I asked him what it meant. He goes, well, it's just that, that smell, it just smells good. It smells like home. And the communion table for us is to be that reminder that this is not our home, that, that there is a home waiting for us. That Jesus says that when he talked to his disciples, he said, this is the last time I'm going to eat this meal together with you. The next time we eat this meal together, it's going to be together around the table in heaven. And so for us, we we come to the table every single week here at LifeQuest to be reminded that that home, um, while this feels like home here, it's, it's awesome to be around our family and our friends. This isn't our permanent home. Our permanent home is in heaven, around that table with the Lord, that that one day, hopefully soon, we will enjoy this meal together with him. Paul writes this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he goes on and talks about how we need to do that in the right spirit and with the right attitude and that we need to examine our hearts so that we don't just come to the table like, oh yeah, it's communion time again. That we examine our hearts and we ask God to make sure that we are taking this meal together with the right attitudes in our heart and that we come with our sins forgiven and asking Christ to, to forgive us and wash us clean. We practice open communion at LifeQuest. That means you are all welcome to the table. Those that are, have a relationship with Christ uh, are welcome at the table. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, we practice a form of communion that's that's old. Um, it's simply taking the bread out of the, the plate and dipping it in the cup. And then what we do, it's kind of a, our family tradition, is we kind of go back to our seats, get together with a few other people, whether it's one family or a couple of families. And we take communion together in those groups as we pray with each other. So we we just ask that you don't come to the communion table alone. If you see someone by themselves, invite them to come with you. This is also the time that we bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Uh, There's baskets up front for you to do that. And there's two tables. And uh, so I'm going to pray. And then we'll open the communion tables up. And we'll celebrate this meal together. And I pray that as you take communion, that the taste, and and, uh, I'm not sure how much smell will come out. Um, but it will remind you of home that one day we're going to enjoy this meal together around the table with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these elements, for the bread that represents your broken body, for the cup of juice that represents your blood, 
that forgives us and heals us. Father, as we take this meal together, may we be reminded of home, that that home is yet to be, that day that we get to, not only do we remember what you did for us on the cross, but that day that we get to enjoy this meal with you. Lord, we look forward to that day. We ask your blessing over this time and your blessing over our offerings as we bring them as an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tables are open.
This morning we're going to continue uh, our message series on Esther, and I'm very, very excited to introduce to you, uh, for the first time on a Sunday morning at LifeQuest, Mrs. Ashley a- Edwards. A- I wonder why I said Adams. Edwards. Ashley Edwards. Yeah, go ahead. Give her a warm welcome. All right, so I'd just like to open with prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, please give me your words and an audience of receptive hearts. Amen. What does a leader look like? Take just a second and imagine in your head, what kinds of qualities does a leader have? Anyone have one off the top of their head? Charisma. Ooh, good one. What else? Integrity. Wisdom. And... Sense of humor. Are any of these qualities surprising? Does anyone disagree strongly on one of the qualities that's been raised so far? No. Did anyone imagine in their head dishonest as a quality they look for in a leader? No. What about lawbreaker? How many of you pictured someone who could be a part of our youth group or Kids Quest? Not many, right? But if we look at the story of Esther, Esther really doesn't fit with our imagined worldview, either as Americans living in this century or as the modern church of what a leader should look like, because she's all of those things. And yet we see through the story of Esther that God is using her in a really mighty way. So during our time here on earth, many of us are going to be called to positions of leadership and power. And I think what's really important for us to remember is that God's going to hold us accountable for the power that he gives us. Um, And so I think that it's really important for us to study his word and to look at the expectations that he has of the people he puts in power. Uh, So for the past month or so, I've been reading through the book of Esther and watching the different um, versions, veggie tale and otherwise, um, of her story. And then as a Ph.D. and professor who often teaches courses on leadership, in fact, I'm teaching one coming up in a couple weeks, Um, I I find myself really being moved when God uses what I've learned in my time as a grad student to really tell me or reveal things about himself. And so this is a really good example of a time where I felt like God was using what I already knew um, from books and grad classes and said, hey, there's a lot about me in there too. So the story of Esther, I think, provides some really clear insights about biblical leadership, and some of them were surprising to me. So through the story, I think God tells us a lot of things, but there are four specifically that I wanted to talk about today. Um, Number one, that a leader doesn't always fit within our world's view of what a leader should look like. Number two, that leaders are motivated to fight for social justice. Uh, Number three, that leaders break the rules and accept the consequences. And then number four, that God's got this, and leaders know that, but that they're still willing to take appropriate and obedient action. So at the beginning, I asked you to envision leaders, and some of you probably had visions of specific people in your head. But I think for many of us, Esther wasn't part of that vision, unless you're really just in Esther mode because we've been doing this message series now for four weeks. Um, But one of the qualities about Esther that makes her a surprising choice as a leader is her age. Um, So it says young in the story of Esther, but historical estimates are that she was around 14 years old. So any 14-year-olds in the house? Tracy's not 14, right? 15. It would be asking a lot for us to think about putting somebody like Gracie as mature, and trustworthy as you are, in a position of such power. And yet God clearly uses Esther in spite of her age. Because age doesn't matter to God. If he gives you power, he gives you power. Um, Here in the U.S., we actually have laws that regulate what leaders are required to be when it comes to age. The Constitution specifies for three specific jobs. So in order to be a congressperson, you have to be at least 25. In order to be a senator, you have to be at least 30. And in order to be president of the United States, you have to be at least 35. And what is the logic behind this, right? It's because we assume that with age comes wisdom and experience. Um, But we have worldly examples of young leaders as well. Uh, The youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner, Malala Yousafzai, uh, the Pakistani advocate for uh, female education. Um, She was 17 two years ago when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, and she's continued to be an advocate ever since. 
Um, Mark Zuckerberg in the world of business for all of us Facebook users was only 20 when that um, social media platform emerged and he's clearly made that into a, a career and a foundation and, and almost a lifestyle. And so if we look at the Bible, consistently there are examples of God using people across different ages. Jesus was only 30 when he started his ministry, and it's estimated he was only like 33 when he died. So young and not for a very long period of time. But then we have examples in the Old Testament like Moses, who was 120, and then Noah and Adam, who are um, said to have lived into their 900s. So what we can see from this is that age is just a number and that God's power is going to move through people regardless. The second quality about Esther that makes her a surprising leader is that she's a woman. And this was especially true in the Old Testament, but it's still true today. So even though women make up 51% of the population of the United States, only 20% of women are Congress people, or only 20% of Congress are women. Um, and if we're talking about Fortune 500 companies, in 2006 that number went down to 4%. So women don't hold a lot of power in our country today. Um, and yet Esther through her marriage to King Xerxes and through trusting in God, is able to rise to a position of power where she's helping to make decisions for the entire kingdom of Persia, which Alicia gave us a really great map to show is very, very vast at this, uh, at this point. And another unique thing about Esther as a female leader in the Bible is that her um, power and leadership does not come from her maternity, right? It's not that she's the mother of someone, um, as we have with the example of the Virgin Mary. But we don't even know from the book of Esther whether Esther bears children to the king. Um, and so I think that's another important takeaway from this book. Now, the two most surprising characteristics about Esther I saved until the end. Um, number one, Esther is dishonest. Uh, parents and children of parents, so that should be all of us, right? We know that a lie of omission can get us into just as much trouble as not telling the truth to begin with. And based on her cousin Mordecai's advice, Esther chooses to keep her identity as a Jewish secret um, from the courts and from the king. And that's something that I, I know many of us, if I asked you if you wanted to vote for someone dishonest for president, we would immediately out of hand say no. And yet Esther, in this one example, shows us that telling the truth or being entirely uh, transparent is not always expected. This is not an excuse for any of us to be dishonest, just throwing out there since everyone's out here today. Um, but the second characteristic that I thought was really surprising is that Esther is a criminal, and she's not just guilty of violating the Persian law by going before the king, as Julie talked to us about a few weeks ago, right, which was against Persian law, but Esther is guilty of violating God's law. The Old Testament is pretty clear about spending the night together before you're married. And even though we could make all sorts of excuses about how Esther probably didn't choose to spend a night with the king, it was probably part of what she was required to do, the Old Testament is pretty legalistic. That's part of why Jesus came to save us from the law, right? And so she's as guilty of violating God's law as she is of violating Persian law. Um, but I think just as telling is that in addition to being a lawbreaker herself, Esther, as a member of the Jewish community, is part of a group of believers who are all probably known in the Persian kingdom as lawbreakers, right? The whole reason that Haman's on this genocidal course to kill all of the Jews is that Haman refused to bow before him. And you have to imagine this wasn't rare behavior for a Jew during this time, right? Because the Bible says that we should bow only before our God. And so I think it's really important for us to recognize that the group of people that Esther is so strongly tied to is a group of people who we would look at today as kind of having questionable ethics or uh, law-following practices. And Esther is not the only biblical leader with this kind of questionable background, with traits we wouldn't really think of as leadership eligible. Um, King David, who's one of the best known kings of Israel, um, sent Uriah the Hittite to the front lines of battle so that when he died, he could take his wife Bathsheba as his own. This was in 2 Samuel. And that's not what we remember David for, right? We remember him as an ancestor of Jesus and as the author of many of the Psalms. Um, Saul of Tarsus, who we often refer to as the Apostle Paul, is another great example of someone who was a persecutor of Jews before his conversion in Acts 9, um, and he's credited as writing most of the New Testament, as many as 14 out of the 27 books. 
And Jesus, although uh, we'll, we'll get to Jesus' law-breaking later, um, Jesus was born of an unwed virgin and a carpenter, which makes him very classically blue-collar, right? He was born in a manger. And again, that's a quality that we don't really look at and value today in leadership. So I think that the takeaways for us from this idea that biblical leadership doesn't always look the way that we think is that the reason it doesn't look that way is because of sin, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so I think what that says to us is that it's unfair, it's non-biblical of us to expect perfection from our leaders because Jesus doesn't expect perfection of any of us. And then the second important thing that we should take away from this is that biblical leadership isn't about one prescribed set of characteristics, right? Um, It's not about a certain political party. It's certainly not about a certain denominational affiliation. And if we look at leaders in the Bible, they're incredibly diverse. Um, One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospels. Right, we have four Gospels from four very different perspectives. Luke's Gospel, Luke is a Greek, well-educated, he's a physician, is very precise and it's empirical. And it matches really well with other historical evidence from that day. And then we look at the Gospel of John. John is known as uh, the, disip- the disciple who Jesus loved. And that's much more passionate and intense. And that's where we get all of our information about the miracles that Jesus performed. And so I think by looking at these diverse perspectives, what we learn is that God uses these diverse leaders to reveal different parts of himself. If we were only to select one Gospel, we would be missing out on a whole scope of the things that Jesus did during his time on earth. Now, the second major thing that I think that God is showing me through the book of Esther is that a true leader is motivated to fight for social justice. So in Esther 7-4, Esther says, And spare my people, this is during a banquet with the king and Haman, um, Spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And this is the part I think is the most interesting. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, but because no such distress would be worth deserving the king. I think this really highlights for us the privilege of not being a Jew in ancient Persia, right? And, and, and of being the king. But Esther says, if you were just going to make me a slave, which sounds pretty horrible, right? Um, I wouldn't have said anything, but it's because my very life is on the line. And I think that this is a kind of an uncomfortable point, but I think that This echoes something that we hear today um, from different minority groups and especially from people of color, um, that the reason that they're willing to speak up isn't because there are minor injustices, and we'll talk about some of those, but because some of them feel like their lives are threatened. And I want to put a disclaimer out there. I'm not talking about interactions with law enforcement. We have several members of the law enforcement community here who I'm really proud of. I'm talking about systematic things that happen in our country that put certain people at a disadvantage. Um, An example of a quote from 1955, um, Mammy Till uh, Mobley, who is the mother of Emmett Till, many of you probably learned about him in history class, he was a 14-year-old black boy who was lynched in 1955 for being accused of flirting with a white woman. His mom said this, two months ago I had a nice apartment in Chicago, I had a good job, I had a son, And when something happened to Negroes in the South, I said, that's their business, not mine. Now I know how wrong I was. The murder of my son has shown me that what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. And there are some more recent examples. Um, The mother of Michael Brown, um, who's the young man who died in Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago, um, she was just interviewed and said, um, we would expect any mother to speak up about the perceived cause of her child's death. And she didn't say this, but I'm adding, regardless of whether or not we assign blame to them for the reasons surrounding their death, right? So if, um, heaven forbid this happened, um, one of us had a child who was texting and driving and they died as a result of that, very clearly their own actions, right, in this instance, no one would think it was political for us to get involved in pushing for more legislation, uh, legislation to punish texting and driving, Right. Um, But this woman is saying, in part because of the circumstance and because of her son's racial identity, it became political. Unfortunately, I saw this firsthand as a professor at the college at Brockport in December of uh, 2014. Um, There were a group of students who were part of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and they were protesting quietly across campus. And there was a lot of backlash verbally, but what was more astounding were the responses on the anonymous social media site Yik Yak. Um, The tamest example that I can share with you is your protest would be better hanging from a tree. 
And I can tell you that at least five students left the university because they felt like their safety was in jeopardy. So I think one of the things that we can take away is that most of us, thank the Lord, have never had to encounter this kind of feeling, this kind of fear of having our own personal lives threatened as Christians living in the United States, which suggests that we have a lot of privilege and that that privilege comes with power, that we have a voice that will be heard and that we can use to fight some of the injustice that may or may not affect us indirectly. Um, as Christians, not as LifeQuest, but as a larger church, we're really well known for a few causes. Um, we're known for feeding the hungry. I think it's an Egg Sunday, right? Egg Sunday is a really great example of this. Um, the church I was part of as a college student ran the largest food shelf. It was privately funded by the church for the Twin Ports area in northern Minnesota. Um, we're also really well known for helping needy in other countries, whether it be um, building wells in Haiti. I remember my mom donating to 700 Club to do that when I was in high school, or Operation Christmas Child, which many of us have participated in, protecting the unborn. Um, Julie, when she was talking about Esther, mentioned asking to be removed from a clinical trial relating to abortion drugs. And uh, for Mother's Day, the church LifeQuest here makes donations on our behalf to organizations like Compass Care, which helps to provide options. Um, and then one that the, the modern church isn't well known for, but I think LifeQuest is doing a really good job at, um, is meeting the needs within our own community. So we have many people out here who are involved in Flower City Work Camp. We have people who created Frosty and Friends to make sure the holiday needs in particular of our community are met. And we're working really hard on getting the gate together so that we can provide a safe place for youth here in Hilton. But there are a couple modern areas of injustice that I think as a modern church, and not specifically LifeQuest, but as Christians, we're well known for staying out of. And I think to our detriment um, in the larger community. Uh, one of those is issues relating to gender inequality. So we know that both financially and in terms of relational violence, women suffer to a much higher degree than their male counterparts. Um, well, it's easy to say we also enjoy a lot of freedoms in this country. Women only make about 79% of their male counterparts, and that gap grows significantly if we're talking about women of color. So a Hispanic woman only makes 54% of her male, white male counterpart, all other factors being equal. And the narrowing of that gap is so slow that with the current change rate, it'll take over 100 years before Cora is paid the same amount as baby Danny. Uh, and this becomes especially problematic when we look and see that women are also much more likely to be the re uh, recipients of violence at the hands of their romantic partners and other people that they know. Um, so one in five women are assaulted. One in three women are violently, um, are the victims of physical violence at the hands of their romantic partner. And one in seven women are stalked to the degree that they fear for their own and people they care about safety. Um, so I think that in conjunction, we can look and we can see, okay, yeah, there still is a lot of work to be done in terms of gender inequality in the U.S., and maybe that's a cause we could get a little more involved in, you know, lobbying for family leaves or things like that. But I think another area that we're known for staying out of is uh, relating to racial inequality. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not talking about the controversial cases right now. I'm talking about the fact that black students are expelled at twice the rate of white students, um, that African Americans are twice as likely to be unemployed in 2013 regardless of education level, but that's a factor too because a black 30-year-old is less likely to have a college degree by almost 20% compared to a white 30-year-old. Uh, we also know in the broader sense that there are some um, criminal justice system things that are systematic, so um, black uh, drivers are stopped um, more frequently than white drivers, and as a result of those stops, they're three, uh, three times much three times more likely to have their vehicles searched, and they are twice as likely to be arrested for drug crimes despite all of the evidence that we use drugs at comparable rates. So I think when we look at these things, it's easy to see that there are some areas, some really non-controversial areas, where there's inequality between groups of people right here in the United States. How many of you know Christian lap, uh, rapper Lecrae? Anyone listen to Lecrae? He, he's a black man, and he said um, in a Facebook video recently that he's spoken out about abortion and about ISIS, and he gets a lot of support from his white brothers and sisters. And then this is a direct quote. But yet when I've spoken out recently about what I see to be either authoritative or racial injustice, there's the sentiment of what feels like hostility or defensiveness. 
And that's heartbreaking because if people of color within our church feel like we're not listening and understanding them, I can only imagine what people of color who are not members of the church think about modern Christianity. And I think that that's especially concerning to us if our larger mission is to reach people for for Jesus Christ and to share the gospel. Because if I fear on a day-to-day basis that things are going to happen to me or to my children, it's really difficult for you to engage me in a conversation about, um, you know, what's going to happen forever after I die. And so I think that this is an area that should be really motivational for us for these reasons, um, but that these missed opportunities and others that I haven't talked about should weigh heavily on our conscience because they weighed heavily on the conscience of Jesus and of our Lord. Um, so Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And it's easy to say that that verse means that Jesus doesn't acknowledge differences between men and women or between people of different ethnicities or different races. But I think what it really clearly says is that we're all equal. It's not that he doesn't recognize those things, but that those distinctions don't matter to him because Jesus erases all of that. And if it doesn't matter to him, How can we not be motivated to make sure it doesn't matter to people in the world today? Um, If he's striving to offer equality, I think that should be something that motivates us as well. Um, And we should feel convicted about it because in Psalm 72.4 he says, "Uh, May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. If we don't do anything, if we just enjoy the privileges that we have by not having to be concerned about these things, we are being part of that oppression, and I certainly don't want to be held accountable for that um, when I come before God. So I think our takeaway should be that we should be motivated to fight for all kinds of people who are weak, oppressed, or forgotten, because it's biblical. That's very clearly why Jesus came. Um, There are a lot of different verses. Just one example, Proverbs 3.8, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. And I think that if we look at examples, I know everyone knows Twitter and hashtags, right? A hashtag is like a brief phrase that helps people to connect to different messages on the same theme. Um, One that's been really controversial is the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And not even speaking to that specifically, I think if we look at examples from the Gospels, that Jesus might be hashtagging things that made people in his day equally uncomfortable. Um, So in John 4, when he's having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, his tweet about that might be hashtag Samaritan lives matter. Uh, Or in John 8, when he saves the adulteress from being stoned, it might be hashtag uh, women's lives matter. Or on the many occasions when he heals lepers, hashtag leper lives matter. Um, Or in Matthew 15, when he um, saves the demon-possessed daughter of the Canaanite woman, uh, hashtag Gentile lives matter. And he wasn't doing these things to be divisive, and he wasn't doing these things to say that Jewish lives don't matter. He was doing these things because it was countercultural, because these were groups that were not well-respected or considered to be equal in the Old Testament, and he wanted to make a statement about that. Um, So as members of of the majority, we can have a voice, And we can help to try to affect things for equality in this country uh, because we have power through our privilege and God's going to hold us accountable for that. Relatedly, uh, one of the things that a true leader does that I think Esther really clearly shows us in my third point is that a true leader breaks the rules and then they accept the consequences of those actions. So at the end of Esther uh, 4.16, she says, uh, When this is done, I will go uh, before my king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Esther is acknowledging, A, I'm not supposed to do this, and B, bad things are supposed to happen if I do, and I'm okay with that. Um, There are a lot of historical examples of this. Um, Julie talked about Corrie Ten Boom and her family as a courageous woman. Um, She and her family provided sanctuary to Jews and the resistance against the Nazis. Um, And as a result, her family was imprisoned where two family members died. Um, But as a result of their actions, many Jews were saved, six specifically um, from the moment when the Ten Booms were arrested. Uh, A local example of this is Susan B. Anthony, who voted illegally in 1872 in Rochester, New York, and as a result was tried and convicted of violating the law, but her work successfully resulted in the 19th Amendment, which gives women the right to vote. There are a lot of other examples I could go into, but I think what's important for us to see is that sometimes people who break the law, well, it's really easy to look and say, 
that's a naughty thing to do and you should go in time out or, or any of those kind of simplistic answers is that these people are following the example of many great civic leaders and biblical leaders who violated the law in order to affect change. Um, Jesus is a great example of this. He broke the Sabbath, right? He picked grain for his disciples to eat on the Sabbath. He's known well for healing people on the Sabbath. Um, he refused to stone the adulterous woman in John 8. He socialized with Samaritans, and he destroyed the temple. That's just part of the list, right? And as a result of those actions, the Jews determined that he should be put to death in accordance with their law. And I think it's really valuable for us to see that and remember and to take away that in order to follow along with God's uh, Uh, God's plan, there are times when rules need to be broken. Um, The caution to that is you should pray about it first. Uh, Unlikely that God is calling you to speed home so you can get back in time for, uh, I don't know, like a a a baseball game. I was to say football. I know it's not football season yet. Um, So if it's primarily benefiting you to break the rules, it's maybe not from God. If it's primarily benefiting others and you've prayed about it, it might be worth uh, thinking about. Um, But also recognizing that even though he's going to call us to break the rules, he's not always going to save us from the consequences of those actions. Esther was saved. Esther didn't die. Um, Susan B. Anthony, actually, while convicted, never spent time in prison for her conviction, but Corey Ten Boom did. And there are many other examples of people who broke the rules and and spent time in prison or were killed uh, for their efforts. In our privilege, for most of us, the biggest risk is that we're going to be embarrassed. Someone's not going to like us might get thrown out of a church. Um, But here in the U.S., we're not facing the same kind of prosecution or persecution that Christians are elsewhere. Uh, The last main point is that a true leader recognizes that God's got this, right, that he's in charge. But as Alicia really clearly started to talk about, that that doesn't just mean we sit back and we wait for God to do something. It means that we act. Um, So up until Esther 7, I think for many of us reading through the book, it's not really clear who's in control, but we certainly wouldn't say Esther. At best, maybe we'll say Mordecai, probably King Xerxes, most definitely looks like Haman's in control. And all of these are examples of people who look a lot more traditionally like a leader, male, former governmental power. But Esther realized that God's plan is hopefully not for the Jews to die, and it's certainly for her to speak up and say something. She's not just asking him for a miracle, she's willing to act to make that miracle happen. So as a list of her actions, she's fasting and praying. She's requesting that others fast and pray. I think it's important to note that she's not asking anyone to do something she's not doing first. Um, She's going before the king uninvited, so she's not, as a leader, delegating the tough tasks. She's inviting King Xerxes and Haman to banquet, and then another banquet. And then after the king grants her petition to save the Jews, She supports the edict from the king. I know technically the series doesn't go past chapter 7, but I thought it was really interesting that what happens afterwards is the king issues an edict, and then instead of being killed, the Jews kill everyone else. Um, And and Esther was a part of making that happen, and I think it's important for us to note. Uh, There's one other leader that I briefly want to talk about. Um, She's part of the reason why when I saw that the title of this series was God's Got This, I I wanted to be involved. Tracy Morrison was a longtime staff director at Camp Victory, which is a Christian camp in southeastern Minnesota that I was a part of uh, for many years. A couple years ago, she was having some really severe headaches, and she went to her doctor, and her doctor said, oh, it's just anxiety. Like, go see a therapist. And she was like, no, it's not. And she continued to seek medical opinions and eventually was diagnosed with um, a malignant melanoma in her brain, uh, late stage four. Uh, which was the resurgence of a disease that had been in remission since her early 20s. Uh, From the beginning of her diagnosis, Tracy was really active. Um, She started a foundation uh, with uh, God's Got This as the slogan. Um, She visited different specialists. She took part in treatments. She went in and out of hospice as her disease progressed and then became better. Um, But she died on July 8th. um, And her husband wrote that she aggressively crossed the finish line into the arms of um, her Savior, Jesus. And if her Facebook page has been any indication, I I seriously, 15 to 20 posts every day since she's been um, in hospice this most recent time of people who were saved or who developed a foundation in their faith because of Tracy and and her work and because of her testimony throughout her disease. And so I think it's really easy for us as Christians to wait on a neon sign from God when we're supposed to act. 
But he doesn't usually give us that neon sign. Instead, he, he trusts that we're going to be faithful and that we're going to look for action that we can take and then pray about it and, and determine whether it's part of his plan. So Esther could have waited for Mordecai to do something. Tracy could have waited for a miraculous healing and not sought treatment. But we don't know what would have happened if they hadn't elected to be part of God's plan. Um, there's a poem um, from Martin Niemöller, who was a pastor. Um, there are many different versions, but it's essentially about um, a ca- the cowardice of German intellectuals uh, during World War II, during the Nazis' rise to power. And so he says, first came the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out for I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. So our inaction might put us in a position of not having a choice or not having an advocate other than Jesus later on, Um, but he might allow us to be the consequences of that inaction. So I think the takeaways from this are twofold. Number one, God is in control, and there's no question about that, that we might look and see and think we know who's in charge, like Haman, um, but God knew what was happening and had a plan that whole time. Um, He says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And so we should all take confidence in that um, as we are in a kind of time of political turmoil and many of us are experiencing unrest and distress that no matter what it looks like, God is in charge, but that he might call us to act on his behalf. So I'd just like to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, let us be your vessels. Give us the courage and energy to lead others when called, especially when leadership comes with costs. Give us your eyes that we may share your priorities as we put our trust in you. Allow us to act in ways that are just and show concern for the weak or oppressed. Give us also the wisdom to award power to those whom you have selected. Help us to remember that even though leaders you've ordained may not look as we'd expect, It's because they're corrupted by sin and allow us to be merciful. We're forever grateful for the opportunity to be part of your plan. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Again, thanks for joining us this morning. If you're able to stick around and help us to clean up and get things packed away, that would be fantastic. And uh, if not... Enjoy this beautiful day, and we will see you guys next weekend. Blessings. It is an egg Sunday. They are over here by the table. Uh, Take them to feed your family. Take them to give to someone in need. Uh, Use it as an opportunity to share Christ with someone. Blessings.